from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. On Monday, September 11th, 2017, we observed the 16th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. The bell you hear was rung to commemorate the falling of the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York. President Trump spoke at the Pentagon. Our values will endure. Our people will thrive. Our nation will prevail, and the memory of our loved ones will never, ever die. But against the backdrop of the remembrances in New York, at the Pentagon, and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, is a growing concern that people might do just that, forget. And on this program... We'll examine what's at stake and what's ahead. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. I want to read you something. It's from Mike Manis. He's a former CIA covert operative. He can't join us in person because of security concerns. But he sent me a note about 9-11 this year that's very important and poignant. Here's what he said. When 9-11 happened, I was stationed overseas as a deputy chief of station for the CIA. As such, my perspective of what effect the attacks had on the U.S. population was largely shaped by the media reports I saw on television or read in the newspapers abroad. I didn't get to witness the upswell of patriotism and unity that apparently occurred in the immediate aftermath of the attacks. My first visit back to the U.S. after 9-11 occurred in the summer of 2002. By then, the American flags that decorated people's front yards or the ribbons tied to automobile antennas had mostly disappeared. My friends and family assured me that these things happened, but I didn't see it. Instead, I encountered many people who appeared eager to put 9-11 in the rearview mirror. Given that I had just spent six months working nonstop to help capture the perpetrators and planners of the attack, this attitude surprised me. Sixteen years later, I believe the situation is even worse. As a country, we tend to have a very short memory when it comes to disasters. The average citizen seems to have forgotten the fact that terrorism is still a very real threat. After almost 20 years of working against these groups on behalf of the U.S. government, I can assure you that if there is even the slightest chance of repeating 9-11, our adversaries will take it. For the time being, they'll content themselves with using vehicles and knives to achieve the same psychological impact until something bigger comes along. Chilling words from Mike Manis, former deputy chief of station for the CIA. He was working overseas during the attacks. So 16 years later, where are we? 
That's the focus of the program today. So, how has the terrorism picture in the U.S. changed since 9-11? Joining us on Skype is Tara Maller. She's a spokesperson and senior policy advisor with the Counter-Extremism Project and a former CIA military analyst. So, Tara, we haven't seen any big terror attacks using airplanes or complex plots in the U.S. since 9-11, but what we have seen is a simplification of terrorism in the U.S. What's your takeaway from the last 16 years? Sure, I think it's changed in a number of ways, um, partially some of it technological uh, and also part of it strategic. So on the technology side of the equation, uh, you didn't have terrorist groups using the technologies back in the post 9-11, immediate aftermath of 9-11, because the technologies weren't available. And now you see groups like ISIS exploiting, uh, in many cases, American companies' platforms, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Google, YouTube, to project and amplify their message globally, exploiting applications and encrypted communication devices to be in touch with individuals that they might never have had firsthand access to. And this is not just in terms of ideological messaging and propaganda, um, through you know their magazines like The Beak and their you know uh, extremist sermons, but it's also through um, logistics on attacks, remote control attacks, or they're called different names by different people, virtual planning attacks, where you have operatives or individuals in regions like Raqqa or in regions like Mosul in touch with people all over the globe, assisting, abetting, and aiding them in carrying out attacks in ways that was not possible um, at the time. Uh, of 9-11, for example. So, that, so that's one way. And then because of that, you see the group's strategy changing. They've been more inclusive. ISIS, for example, has sort of allowed anybody to carry out attacks in their name. Uh, traditionally, terrorist groups were stricter. I'd, I'd note about you know who was part of their group or adhering to certain ideological tenets of the organization or belief in the caliphate. Now you see people carrying out attacks and ISIS claiming some of these post facto, even though they didn't necessarily have uh, strategic or organizational guidance related to the attack itself. So how is the U.S. government, the intelligence community, shifting to meet this challenge in the terrorism space? Sure. So I think one of the things that you've seen, there's much that has remained the same and should remain the same, you know, taking back territory that these groups hold in places like Syria and Iraq, and we've been effective at that. But in other ways, there have been shifts, and to be honest, there need to be more shifts in terms of the online battlefield, the virtual caliphate. So I guess some examples are, uh, you know, in the previous administration, this um, there were a number of offices set up to deal with this, uh, the Global Engagement Center at the State Department, for example. Um, there's been numerous efforts, both by organizations like my own, Counter Extremism Project, on counter narratives, on pressuring technology companies. So there's been a lot of work, but it's actually fairly new. So it's really been the past, you know, five, six years, and hopefully that will uh, you know, continue going forward. I think that we've seen um, some changes that have been positive, but there's still a lot more to be done because it's going to involve the uh, mobilization of not just the government on this on this issue, but also the private sector as well. Um, interestingly, you also saw this be an issue um, with the recent uh, events in, in Charlottesville. And in that case, it was interesting to see that tech companies did mobilize rather rapidly against some of those groups. With ISIS, it's been uh, consistent pressure on some of these companies over time, and they're getting better, but there's still a lot more that can be done to shut down some of this jihadist uh, activity and coordination that's happening uh, via these platforms. Tara, some of your former colleagues at the CIA and in other intelligence community agencies think that 
this terror situation is worse now than it was after 9-11 or during the 9-11 era because of technology and tactic shifts by terror groups. What do you think? It's an interesting question in terms of is it you know a bigger threat now than it was then, and how do you me- you know how are you sort of measuring that? What are the metrics? I think if you look at it, I mean, if you look at the fact that since 9-11, where there was I think it was the second greatest loss of life on American soil on 9-11, we haven't seen an attack of that scale. Um, I think it's less than a hundred deaths on on domestic soil here um, since 9-11 due to you know Islamic terrorism. Um, so while there is a threat, I actually think the threat is a lot higher in places like Europe and in the Middle East, um, which doesn't mean by any means that we should become complacent, because I think that if you look at why we've seen no large scale attack and why we've been fortunate, actually, even if there's still a problem, it's because to the credit of law enforcement agencies, homeland security efforts, intelligence sharing and cooperation, the work that we've done overseas in places like Syria and Iraq. All of that has helped prevent large-scale attacks taking place on U.S. soil since 9/11. So I think there is some praise to be had for both a Democratic, uh, you know, Republican administration, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration on that front. Again, that's not to say we should become complacent because all it takes is a few individuals to inflict um, significant damage, and we and we've seen that happen, unfortunately. And many attacks, whether that be driving, you know, with a vehicle or with explosives or with just guns. So I think that at the end of the day, the threat is still there, um, but it's slightly different and it's modified. And I, I, to, to be effective, it's going to continue to rely upon the same the same pillars uh, that have been effective since 9-11. But I will note that we, as the United States, have a slight advantage. We're geographically more distant from places like Raqqa you know, and, and Mosul. So we don't have, we, our numbers are not as high in terms of foreign fighter flows, in terms of people returning here from those areas. Um, whereas in Europe, that's a, mu- a much greater problem. And it's why you've actually seen more significant attacks in Europe. But because terrorism is a global problem and, and we need to work with European partners on that um, to make sure that we don't see a rising threat here at home. So I, 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 I agree that we, we should not become complacent, but I do think it's worth acknowledging that to the credit of law enforcement and intelligence, we've prevented sort of the worst case scenarios here at home um, over the past 16 years, which is not to say there's there's no threat. Um, but I think we, we see a threat, but it's of a different sort. And there's also this concern about the general public becoming complacent, because after all, it has been 16 years since those massive destructive attacks of 9-11. Sure. And I do think, I mean, given it's the anniversary of 9-11, I should point out that in terrorism across time, there still is, despite the changes, despite the evolution of technology, despite the new rise of different types of groups, there still also is consistency, though, in terms of the areas of concern. For example, terrorism, traditionally, aviation has always been a concern. It's why we put so many resources and attention onto aviation. So that's always going to be a constant potential um, you know, area of concern, even though we've been fortunate that we haven't seen another 9-11-style attack. Similarly, trans, you know, all transportation targets, subways, metros, all the typical targets remain concerning areas. And that's why you see ramped up uh, security, large scale events, soft targets. These are things that across time have always been of concern. I think one of the things to look at also 
and I always hesitate to sort of list these in a laundry list because I don't want to throw out ideas, but some of these are a, a publicly available <laughs> listed concerns. But, you know, with the rise of new technologies like consumer drones, for example, and, and sort of thinking, and that's, again, it's the, uh, you know, the imagination issue, thinking of things that we haven't yet seen that could be. Nobody at the time envisioned the 9-11 style attack specifically. There were, you know, there's the infamous PDB, for example, um, that is now publicly available, the President's Daily Brief, which the intelligence community did warn about al-Qaeda's desire to use planes. Again, many terrorist groups have had a desire and, a, you know, wanted to use planes to carry out attacks, aviation hijackings. That's something we had seen. But to envision the, that's more of a, a strategic uh, intel warning, you know, a time, a place, a location, the specific plot. Those are things where there's usually, unfortunately, in terrorism attacks that are new, a failure of imagination. And th that doesn't mean that the intelligence community is at fault. It's just that it was a, it, a style of attack that we fortunately hadn't seen before. And that doesn't mean that going forward, there won't be new attacks in the future, uh, whether that's next month or whether that's two years from now, that are not within our sort of realm of thinking right now because they just haven't occurred. Those, that style hasn't occurred yet. But I mean, those are that's something that law enforcement and intelligence do try to think about creatively, sort of what are the new areas that we should be worried about? What are the black swan events, the events that are maybe very low probability, but if they were to occur, would be very high impact. These are things that people um, in the intelligence community and in government uh, and outside government too are, are constantly thinking about, not just the likely things on the threat radar, but the unlikely but potentially catastrophic things that could occur. That's Tara Maller, Senior Policy Advisor at the Counter-Extremism Project. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, technology is evolving and so is terrorism. And terrorism is using technology to help it evolve even faster. And when we come back, we'll hear from an expert who has a warning and some advice in the same breath. There are no permanent defeats, but there's also no permanent victories. Coming up when we return to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. This is Target USA. I'm G.J. Green. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? Those that were old enough, at least most of those that were old enough and capable of remembering that day, still remember where they were. But there's a concern about the fact that it was 16 years ago. A lot of people are starting to forget, and there's a concern about complacency. So how does the U.S. and the entire world indeed deal with terrorism? What's out there ahead when it comes to terrorism? Robin Simcox is the Margaret Thatcher Fellow at the Heritage Foundation here in Washington, and we asked him to join us today, and he's on Skype to talk about his views on where we're going and where the terrorists are going to. Thanks, Robin, for joining us. What's happening in your mind? Well, obviously, um, some terrorist groups have risen in status, others have declined somewhat. Um, we've seen the creation of ISIS, which is obviously the preeminent terrorist organization in the world today. It's that group that is inspiring people to its cause 
I think, more than Al-Qaeda, although Al-Qaeda, I think, remains a, a very relevant organization. But in terms of the, West, the, the threat in the West, you're seeing ISIS draw people towards it. You've seen the type of spectacular attacks that we saw on 9-11 have been uh, somewhat, the scale of them has been somewhat reduced. So terrorists today are using vehicles, they're using knives, they're using guns in attacks that may not have the um, the body count of something like 9-11, but are obviously much easier for terrorist groups to be able to pull off. Um, and that makes it a obviously a, a different threat picture for security services today, but I don't think it's one that's any less challenging. What do you make of the tactics that are being used today? Well, I think terrorist groups have figured out that the uh, targeting aviation, for example, is the most spectacular kind of attack that terrorists have been able to pull off, but it's also a risky proposition for them and their ratio, their success ratio in being able to carry out those kind of attacks is quite low. So what they've done instead is look to uh, encourage radicalized people in the West to use whatever weapons essentially come to hand. So if that means uh, taking a knife and trying to stab a police officer or a soldier to death, that's what the jihadist groups of today will encourage. If that means hiring a truck and driving it to civil into civilians in Nice, in Stockholm or Berlin, again, that's what terrorists will encourage. I think you've seen a move away from the spectacular attacks like 9-11 towards much simpler, cruder, but ultimately harder to stop terrorist attacks. And we've seen a lot of that in Europe recently. What is it that the U.S., in your opinion, needs to do or is doing or has to do to deal with the new reality of terrorism? Well, I think there's only a limit. There's a limit to how much the U.S. can do um, if somebody, if a radicalized individual is looking to get a truck and drive over civilians. I think there's a limited amount the U.S. can can do about that to a point. I think what you can say is that Obviously, it needs to be aggressive in how it approaches the issue. That means it has to be uh, a world leader in terms of gathering intelligence, disseminating intelligence, analyzing intelligence, working with foreign partners in intelligence collection and intelligence sharing. Um, obviously, it needs to um, remove this caliphate that's been created in Iraq and Syria. Um, but it also needs to uh, look at the what can be done earlier in the process to turn people away from terrorism. And that's why you're seeing interest in programs like the CVE agenda and whatever it may be called and, and however that is kind of implemented now. That's why you're seeing interest in that kind of um, program, because the U.S. recognizes that there is only a limited amount it can do if if terrorists are absolutely determined to attack. Um, and that's why it needs to be winning the ideological battle. But ultimately, um, this isn't a fight that's going to be uh, resolved in one generation. Uh, Islamist terrorists are going to continue to target the U.S. And unfortunately, that's just the reality of where we are 16 years on after 9-11. OK, the groups that are out there now, we, we, we know that ISIS is, is, is waning, but we hear that Al Qaeda's uh, on the rise again. We hear, we know that the Taliban is still in place, and we have no clue yet what ISIS 2.0 is going to look like. So, what's the best way to sort this out? Well, I think that the key thing is is to remember at the moment there are no 
permanent defeats, but there's also no permanent victories. So we have done some, uh, Osama bin Laden's been killed. Obviously, the Al-Qaeda group, as it existed in 9/11, on 9-11, has changed radically, and lots of its leaders have either been killed or captured. ISIS, it looks like, um, is going to uh, revert to something closer to how it was before 2014, um, a smaller, perhaps more nimble organization that doesn't control territory in the same way. And so we've got to be creative in our response. Sometimes that will mean a military response. Sometimes it will mean law enforcement. Sometimes it will mean um, stricter vetting on who comes in to the country. Uh, sometimes it will mean that police law enforcement are going to have to take um, aggressive approaches, perhaps more aggressive approaches than some of their counterparts in Europe have done. I think ultimately we need to remember there needs to be lots of things in the in the toolbox that we can use when it comes to um, safeguarding the U.S. And at, at times it's going to have more of a military component. At times it will be more law enforcement. But ultimately all those things are needed. Robin Simcox, the Margaret Thatcher Fellow at the Heritage Foundation here in Washington. And as you probably can tell by his accent, he spent some time in the U.K., in London, in fact. He was there on 7-7-2005, July 7th, the attacks there, and knows and remembers very well the impact. And what he did today was to share some thoughts with us about how to look at terrorism moving forward. So, Robin, thank you for your time, as always. My pleasure. Thank you, JJ. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. You can also send me an email to let me know what you think at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. The new Podcast One app is here. There's no other podcast app like this one. Download it in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows. You can get more content for Target USA. You can find articles, social media, episodes. You can make playlists. There's so much you can do. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans because we have our own little community there. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scenes photos, get 360 video, or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a 1,000 videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio. Really cool. So many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening and much, much more. So if you don't do anything else today, remember to download the Podcast One app. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Or go to podcastone.com slash mysurvey. It only takes a few minutes, and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash mysurvey. Or click on the survey banner on podcast. 
Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.